you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. This is episode number 216. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. This is one of the u- unique things about the show. Not only only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Twitch's new username policy, a $185 million cannabis banking company deal, the World Anti-Doping Agency reconsidering cannabis, a patient win in New Hampshire, an anti-drug cop with the nickname Sacker may be sacked for taking drugs, Maryland's plan for full legalization, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? I think this is my favorite intro so far. The jail Google reference really gets me every morning, gets me going. Um, So my headline this morning comes from MJ Biz Daily, and it's in regards to the Safe Harbor Bank out of Colorado. Pioneering cannabis banking company Safe Harbor to trade on NASDAQ via $185 million deal. A cannabis financial institution led by the industry pioneer, Sandy Seafried, is one of the uh, going on its way to going public here in Na- on NASDAQ for a $185 million merger that will give the company more money to lend ma- to marijuana businesses. Um, Safe Harbor Financial announced that uh, definitive agreement on Monday to be taken public by Northern Ac- Lights Acquisition, a bank-checked business also known by as a special acquisition company, or SPAC, or the SPAC money. As a lot of people like to call it the endless piggy bank. 
In a new sales a news release, um, Steve Fried said that the deal will position Safe Harbor to expand financial services and support the growth of the cannabis industry. Our goal is to become a one-stop shop for cannabis business financial needs, she added. Under the merger, uh, the New York-based Northern Lights and affiliate Luminous Capital will pay $70 million in cash and $115 million in common stock to acquire Safe Harbor, a subsidy of Colorado-based partner Colorado Credit Union. The estimate post-transaction equity value of the company will be $327 million, according to this release. Northern Lights trades on the NASDAQ under NLIT. The acquisition by Northern Lights will be will allow Safe Harbor to advance its efforts to remain the premier cannabis financial services provider, um, Sunday said. Uh, she will serve as the CEO of the merged company. The announcement comes a year after Sunday um, left her post at, as the CEO of the Colorado Bank Partners and uh, began to focus on entirely cannabis banking. Uh, Sunday is a nationally recognized for establishing compliance-based banking program for the cannabis business. Now, as one of the people who was uh, on the founding pe- the founding members of the bank, actually, I, I at the time was the vice president of Sweetleaf, and everyone knows my vague and weird law um, that I fell for, uh, we were actually banking with uh, Partners Bank. And it was very interesting to kind of look at the process that they went through in regards to us going through and showing our compliance. Um, I'm very interested to see how this pans out. And in a big way, I'm actually looking at this as a big pointer to the fact that I really think that there we are a lot closer to deschedule or bust than a lot of us think. When companies like this are being acquired, um, I definitely want to make sure that we all consider the fact that listing a cannabis bank on the NASDAQ is a really big fucking deal. So the um, U.S. House recently passed a technology innovation bill called the uh, America Competes Act that includes the Safe Banking Act. Um, and as you know, J- Jason always likes to say for his hope to pass safe banking, but safe banking will allow financial institutions to serve cannabis business without the fear of federal reprisal, to which I say deschedule or motherfucking bust. Now, I do want to also make mention, um, have zero ability to give any sort of financial advice, but in this bit of a conversation, I definitely want to say that this would be something that I would consider um, working with them in the past. Uh, Sunday is a, a real life a, a bad bitch. She's uh, very much focused on... As a woman in banking, first of all, she has a very serious uh, place to be have to get through all of the misogyny that exists in finance to begin with. Um, but she's rolled in, become a pioneer in this process. Now, their fees were fucking exorbitant, and they were literally raking us over the coals and taking a, such a large amount of our money. It'd make the tax businesses look like a fucking light push when we actually talked about the fact that they were charging us the amount of money that they were charging us just to hold our money and so that they could play with it. However, the liability of it being a federally illegal uh, substance that we are funding and getting all this money from, I do understand the liability cost. And, you know, as that in a lot of situations back in the day in the trap world, that's going to go ahead and be our hazard pay. So uh, more power to you, Sunday. I think this should be something really, really exciting to watch and position uh, ourselves in the world of finance. So I'm excited to see what happens and uh, watching the Safe Harbor Bank acquisition go through to Northern Lights. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the state of cannabis news big fucking deal this is a huge huge huge, huge. Pass <laughs> i was waiting for it but <laughs> this this is so huge and how i spell huge is y-u-g-e just like bernie sanders does this is a really good point nicole i personally sometimes sit back and think that maybe there's like farther away with the descheduler bust and federal legalization but this is a huge move so thank you so much for highlighting the story and explaining it so well 
follow the money, y'all. Follow the money. And when we're looking at SPAC deals, buying banks, the first fucking bank to openly bank cannabis, um, while they were, like I said, holding us over the coals, I mean, the ability to put your money in a bank account without having to sit at a fucking ATM with $10,000 sliding in the slip at a time, I mean, it really did change the game for us in Colorado. And this is big, big picture. The only way that businesses can properly scale is with, you know, good banking. Just playing devil's advocate here, but the SPAC maybe has to spend money on cannabis businesses or cannabis-related activity, and certainly purchasing a bank would be less risky, possibly, than purchasing a cannabis-touching business. Correct. And, and they can always fall back on that and change what their actual investment uh, uh, focus was. I feel like the liability is almost higher, though, because of the lack of certain types of insurances. Um, I mean, I, I, fuck, I would say it's I, I would say it's equal uh, to the the risk being taken. With like, those high, high fees, they can afford their litigation costs. And, you know, defense counsel always better than the government's. A really rich bank, I think, is going to be able to beat the IRS. In boop, court. Boop. This also too. This also too really echoes. Um, I don't know if anyone's been following along, but the last few episodes of Billions, where he's trying to buy a bank, and he's also encouraged by safe banking. Lara DeCaro hates Billions. It's one of the best shows on television. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gretchen, I'm kind of on Succession right now. <laughs> That's a good show. Okay, um, everyone, uh, all those uh, correspondents, open up your mics and say, "Deschedule or bust," so I can grab a soundbite. One, two, three. That was so bad. That was terrible. We gotta practice. You guys suck. Deschedule or bust. There it is. That's the one I'm looking for. All right, I think we're at time on that headline. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads and the patriarch of dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got today, Rico? I like that patriarch over there, Susan. Today I have, um, this is actually coming out of several news sources, but I would just use the uh, News One New Zealand, WADA to review whether cannabis should be uh, should remain on the ban list. So America's favorite world-class sprinting supervillain, Shakari Richardson, chooses violence yet again, publicly challenging world anti-doping agency, WADA, to explain how r- race is not a factor in the latest high-profile doping case resolution. Happy 15th day of Black History Month, everybody. And I pray my humble Republican Colleagues are brave enough to speak up on this one because we have yet another real-time example of why CRT should never be banned and proof that, yes, even today, systemic racism does exist. Just so y'all know, I'm calling Shakari a supervillain with the utmost respect and as a response to her embracing the hatred of online trash talkers, opponents, and internet trolls worldwide following the doping scandal that prevented her Olympic debut at last year's Tokyo Games. And I always root for the villain. Harriet Tubman, villain. Martin Luther King, villain. Rosa Parks, villain. Malcolm X, villain. Anita Hill, villain. Fred Hampton, villain. Janet Jackson, villain. Muhammad Ali, villain. Serena Williams, villain. Nelson Mandela, villain. Y'all get the motherfucking deal. Y'all can choose to embrace what and who mainstream media tells you to keep persecuting the innocent and clinging to whitewashed systems built to keep my villains in their place and and uphold racist institutions. I choose to follow the money, read the data, root for the quote unquote bad guys, and more often 
often than not end up on the right side of history. WADA's set to review whether cannabis should remain on the prohibited list, and Shakira Richardson won the 100-meter dash at U.S. Olympic trials only to be disqualified and banned for 30 days after a positive test, which she confessed and apologized for the result of her uh, using cannabis as a coping method to deal with mourning the death of her mother, which was revealed by a reporter mid-interview after breaking a world record during competition in Oregon where cannabis is legal. We've endlessly debated on air whether cannabis should or should not be considered a performance-enhancing drug, but who cares about conclusions drawn by a bunch of talking heads? Because per the article, the white people in charge are changing their tune. The positive impact of cannabis on athletes is disputed with the German Institute of Biochemistry in Cologne saying it would not improve sporting performance but could encourage risk-taking in certain sports. WADA said Tuesday its executive committee is following receipt of requests of a number of stakeholders had endorsed the decision of the list expert advisory group to initiate 2022 a scientific review of the status of cannabis. You heard that right, people. Yet another inconvenient truth revealed by former President Donald Trump Twitter works. The decision conveniently comes as Richardson publicly challenges WADA to explain the, uh, why Russian figure skater Kamila Kalieva uh, was allowed to continue. Just like Shakari, Valieva was favored to win her event. But unlike our magically melanated supervillain, WADA cleared the figure skating Frost Princess to compete after testing positive for heart drug trimetazidine after winning gold in the team com- competition. The Court um, of Arbitration for Sports, CIS, said while 15-year-old Valieva is not cleared uh, and her medals can be stripped in the future, preventing her from performing would, quote, would cause irreparable harm for her uh, in these circumstances. Shakari was not allowed to compete while dis- uh, disputing her case and was pressured into confessing and effectively taking a plea deal to save face for the organization while her own reputation took a hit. Richardson took to Twitter to air her grievances. Can we get a solid answer on the difference of Valieva's situation and mine's? My mother died and I can't run and was also favored to place top three. The only difference I see is I'm a black young lady. The court's response, Valieva is a minor or protected person. So subject to a different set of rules from an adult athlete. Basically, Valieva doped, but she's too young to know any better. Sounds about white to me. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad in these streets, reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what everybody else thinks about this one. Rico, can I ask a question? Um, and I'm not defending anyone. I'm just wondering, what was Shakari Richardson's deal? Was she tested positive right at the time of the games or was this prior to it or she just admitted to it? I don't recall what her prior is prior. It was prior to, and uh-huh. and she was pressured by everybody to admit and not to fight it. So she has a chance of making the relay team. Well, Valieva was actually tested and tested positive back in December, like way before she uh, right. actually, way before she actually uh, uh, even competed. They knew what the fuck was up and they're still letting her compete now. And they're going to let her compete again this week on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, Sadly, these child athletes don't have any say a lot of the times about what goes into their body. And Russia has about 190 different minorities, which this girl does, which she is included in. So I do see this issue, but it's not a white versus black issue at all. I don't know. I I don't know what, what the issue is necessarily, but the IOC's decision specifically stated that the skater would suffer irreparable yeah. harm. Right? Yeah. How, how is Shakari not? How is Shakari? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't really see any other difference. Also, the fact of the matter is that the medication that that young lady took was truly an a yeah. enhancing medication. Yeah. It made her 
breathing more, uh, 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 helped her with her breathing. And what Shakiri did was totally different. But, yo, first of all, shout out. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Rico, for for, for speaking the news and speaking the truth. Um, this is Dr. Bong in New York, man. And Shakira should have been able to, uh, this woman should not have been able to continue in these Olympics. That was wrong, wrong, wrong. Whether it is banned, is banned, banned substance, whether you're a kid, whether you're an adult, whether you didn't know, whether your mom died, whether your daddy died, whether your dog died, wrong is wrong. Yeah, I think she knows. I mean, she's a professional athlete at this point, essentially, the skater. Um, she knows. She's 15. <laughs> well, the, the uh, issue is not whether she knows or not. What Rico is saying is is that, that the institutionalization of this, the committees that oversee this and the folks yeah. that make decisions, that it's just kind of, it's ironic that one decision was made for one person versus someone else. Right. With uh, And, you know, and as being as a, as a black woman and, and black people, and sometimes we might sound a little crispy on the edges, but it seems that way that it is something on the racial side versus something is saying, listen, if like, like the good doctor said, if right is right, wrong is wrong. And it just seems like it crosses over where if it's someone of color, it's almost like, well, you're automatically wrong and you're taken out and, right. and, and that judgment is made so quickly. So I think that's what Rico is trying to say. Not trying yeah. to take words out of your mouth, Rico, but that's the way I <laughs> We're definitely at time on the headline. Well, We're at time on this headline. So I wanted to give Elliot uh, 20 seconds so that we can wrap up and jump to our next correspondent, please. Yeah, I mean, Rico must have uh, read my uh, rant this morning, <laughs> but I, I talked about this. It's clearly a double standard. I do think systemic racism is uh, at play. I feel a little sorry for the girl because she's 15 years old. I'm sure she was coerced. So the issue is not whether they let her in, but I'm sure she's a ratings getter and the whole deal. And, you know, but there's definitely race and the discrimination against cannabis, but probably ratings to play a part. But there's no way that Shakira should have been uh, treated differently than uh, somebody who took a PED, which is substantially worse. So it's just the worst hypocrisy. I went on a one-minute FU rant this morning uh, on the exact topic. So thanks, Rico, for bringing it forward. You ranted, oh. Elliot? Shocker. Oh. This is a well-deserved rant. It is just the most disgusting double standard. Uh, you know, obviously we're used to it by now, but I think there is uh, race at play, and I don't say that lightly. And the cannabis issue is just stupid. It's not performance enhancing. All right. Well, well I think I just think also two people should look at this in, in one other fashion is is the fact of the international world and the global community and the fact that Russia that, that Vladimir Putin is respected and and uh and Biden is not on the global scale. Oh my god. All right. Well running up next to our next correspondent, Liz Rogan, biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning everyone. This story actually is perfect timing because it talks about cannabis drug testing, which is obviously something that we're talking about right now. So thank you for tuning in today, everyone. My story comes from Valley News. It's by Tom Jarvis. Um, the headline reads, New Hampshire ruling favors pot patient in conflict with employer. So the story is out of New Hampshire where a medical patient won in a precedent-setting case. So on January 14th, the New Hampshire Supreme Court held that the Superior Court erred when it dismissed a plaintiff, Scott Payne's complaint alleging employment discrimination against his former employer, Rideaway, 
The issue was whether a reasonable accommodation may be made under New Hampshire RSA 354A for the use of therapeutic cannabis prescribed in accordance with New Hampshire law. Payne was legally recommended medical cannabis to treat his PTSD symptoms, and he worked as an automotive detailer for RideAway. RideAway is a national chain of wheelchair-accessible vehicle providers, and Payne requested accommodation to be excluded from their drug testing policy. While clarifying that he was not requesting permission to use cannabis during work hours, nor to possess it on their premises. Right away denied the accommodation and subsequently terminated his employment for use of cannabis. Payne then filed an employment discrimination suit for failure to provide a reasonable accommodation for his disability. So right away filed a motion seeking judgment, asserting that the requested accommodation was unreasonable because cannabis is illegal under federal law and the trial court granted the defendant's motion. Payne then appealed to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, who unanimously reversed the decision, opining, we agree with the plaintiff that RSA Chapter 354A does not contain any language categorically excluding the use of therapeutic cannabis as an accommodation. John Mayer, who's attorney for the plaintiff, said a reasonable accommodation is generally supposed to be a fact-based inquiry focusing on specifics of what the employee does and doesn't do as part of their job. We argued that the subsection of the statute was being misinterpreted by the trial court and the Supreme Court agrees, continuing that while there's been no final outcome in the pain case, any employee who has prescribed medical marijuana for a disability now has the right to request that he or she be permitted to continue using that prescription even if they test positive for a drug test as a reasonable accommodation. Both the ACLU of New Hampshire and the Disability Rights Center submitted a joint amicus brief and agree with the recent ruling. Henry uh, Clemento Wicks, senior staff attorney for ACLU, said people with disabilities should not be denied employment opportunities based on what is required to treat their conditions. And DRC staff attorney Sarah Jen Carrick said reasonable accommodations need to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, and we are pleased that our Supreme Court has reaffirmed this core element of state civil rights law. The court reversed and remanded the case for further proceedings consistent with its opinion. So I say score one for the medical patient. This shows real movement and recognition of cannabis as legitimate medicine. Personally, I think this is especially important for veterans coming back into the workplace with PTSD issues. I do understand how the employer with many with operations nationwide may have many challenges with cannabis and workplace drug testing. But I think this shows that society is moving forward as the smoke clears in the public perception and stigma slowly drops. And data is proving benefits that we have long known. I think this case is precedent setting, but I would love to hear what the attorneys and others have to say on this topic. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it may be precedent setting. It definitely is out there. I don't know um, New Hampshire law at all, obviously, but there are, it, it would make it the 22nd state to protect employees' rights to consume medicinally um, while off the clock. Obviously, there are um, a few cities that protect actual adult use. Um, you know, but even the state of California does not protect the employee's right to consume cannabis off the clock. We've um, had a bill, AB 1256, Quark introduced it last year, I think, um, that's been bouncing around, has not really gotten very far. <laughs> um, but that has been the law of the land in California since 2008. And um, when a case was decided that said that specifically employers in California do not need to accommodate 
uh, medicinal cannabis use. So we're kind of behind the times here. That's why I always look to the future. <laughs> That's why I bought a DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay. I think yeah. it just goes towards the descheduler bust. It's it's yeah. slowly rolling the wave, the green wave. Yeah, yeah. But this makes only twenty two states out of all the states that have medicinal use right now. We have some work to do. Up next, uh, she is actually the head honcho over at the ultimate cannabis company, Black Buddha Brand, and the founder uh, <laughs> and CEO of Minorities for Medical. Marijuana. We have the illustrious Florida-based Bouse lady herself, Roz McCarthy. What you got for us this morning, Roz? Good morning, Rico. Hey, everybody. Happy to be here. Happy. Um, this this story is actually coming out of Florida, and um, it's just shedding a light on what's going on in our industry. And I want to make sure that we are really tuned in to what's happening from a consumer perspective. And the title says, "Seniors are using cannabis more than ever before." Tampa, Florida. Marvin Yeoman, 74, had tried cannabis as a young adult, but for his wife, it was new. I never, never, ever even thought about marijuana when I was growing up. Never in college, as a young adult, or as a middle-aged adult, says Renee Yeoman, 71 years old. It was not just even something that was on my radar. The Lando Lakes resident had both both undergone recent major surgeries, so they gave in to their daughter's suggestion to use the drug to treat chronic pain. Renee Yeoman discovered she liked how edibles helped her sleep through the night, and avoid the use of other medications. And as seniors, the couple is in good company. When I go to a dispensary, there are more elderly people in there than there are young people, says Marvin. Cannabis use is on the rise among older adults. In 2021, the proportion of adults 65 or older who reported recent cannabis use jumped by 18% according to the 2020 National Survey of Drug Use and Health, released in November, rising from 5.1% in two. 2019 to 6% in 2020. The spike comes on the heels of a steady trend of increased cannabis use among seniors over the past five years. What's more, in 2020, more adults also reported using hold on one second, also reported using um, cannabis sometime in their lifetime, a jump from roughly 32% to 36%, signaling a possible cultural shift in older adults' willingness to open up about past totes. It's accepted now, says Marvin. You used to have to sneak in the back alley to purchase it, but now you can just walk right into the store and buy it like just like if you were going to Publix or Winn-Dixie. In Florida, people with a medical marijuana card can legally, legally purchase THC products throughout the state. Both Marvin and Renee have one. While they say it's expensive to renew, costing a few hundred dollars every other eight months, obtaining a card was simple. They ask you a few questions, you fill out paperwork on if you had surgery or any pain, and then the doctor, re- the doctor reviews it, said Marvin. Nine times out of ten, you're going to qualify. Renee Yeoman has cut back on her prescription drugs, drugs, not drugs, but drugs. I've been on just about everything for either migraines or my back or whatever, she said. We don't like to take these heavy medications or uh, of which you can become addicted. With the edibles, you just kind of seem to just relax. True Leave, which is one of the leading cannabis providers in Florida, offers a 10% senior Sunday. Um, I just want to kind of wrap this up by saying that Dr. Juan Sanchez Ramos, Ramos, a researcher and professor of neurology at the University of South Florida, said that studies show cannabis might help reduce symptoms like insomnia and irritability in Alzheimer patients, improve mo- motor symptoms from Parkinson's, diminish arthritic pain, and combat sleep disorders, conditions that are all common among older adults. This morning, I had a breakfast meeting, and some of the points that came out about questions for seniors was dosing 
and the lack of medical practitioners understanding and knowing how to treat patients who are utilizing cannabis. Number two, research. The fact that mostly all the research is done in Israel. And number three, product options. And the number four, the fact that Big Pharma has a big issue with cannabis and the, and uh, some of the research and some of the things that need to be approved at the federal level won't happen because of Big Pharma. My name is Roz McCarthy. Sign out from the State of Cannabis News Hour, talking about seniors and cannabis. Would love for you guys to weigh in. We've got Ron up from the audience. Ron, did you want to weigh in on Roz's headline? No, I had a question about something. I had just tapped in. I just had a quick question about something, but I'll wait. All right, a, a real quick, coming from a data standpoint, and we worked a lot with uh, um, with senior citizens in the past. Um, it's not just the frequency of uh, senior citizens and their consumption. It's also the ticket size. So if you have a business, it's a very, very, very smart move to uh, market to senior citizens because mm-hmm. they buy way more and they buy a lot. Of, they buy a lot of shit and they have high, high, high standards still. And the senior community is really going to be how the DTC market crushes it because the senior community is not interested in going into 90% of inventories that are being tailored towards Supreme wearing travelers. Absolutely. Boom. And, and 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 markets where there's adult use and a small medical. If you have an adult use dispensary, go target yep. seniors. You will see your business. Absolutely. Growth. All right. Well, we're at time on that headline. Thank you so much, Roz. We'll go ahead and hop to our next correspondent before the relight, Mr. Jason Beck, the longest-running retailer in cannabis history, the industry's very own Kaiser Brose, and the highest supporter of safe banking that will ever let us hang out. What do you have to say today, Jason? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Nicole. Today, my story comes out of Maryland, where lawmakers get a first look at a plan for full cannabis legalization. Maryland lawmakers on Monday began uh, delving into the details of how to legalize the adult use of cannabis should voters support it in the ballot this fall. Democratic leaders in the House delegates are advancing a plan to put the issue to voters in a referendum which would trigger a series of changes in criminal law and automatic expungement of past cannabis convictions. And then lawmakers would, will work out the, at the details of who gets the licenses for growing and selling the drug, how much it would be taxed, and how, how the money would be used. It all sounds like a whole bunch of hodgepodge to me. But they'd also study the health effects of the broad use of cannabis. Marylanders deserve to have their voice heard on the question of cannabis legalization, said uh, said Delegate Luke Clippinger, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and lead sponsor of the cannabis legalization bill. Polls have shown ample support for legalization, including 60 percent in a Goucher College poll last fall, up from 50 percent support in 2014. The Democratic proposal has two parts, one bill that will put the broad question of legalization on the ballot and a second bill spelling out the details of what would happen if the referendum passes. Under the current law, possession of up to 10 grams of cannabis, less than a half ounce, is a civil violation that carries a possible fine of up to $100 for the first offense. Possession of more than 10 grams is a criminal offense. And under the proposal, passage of the referendum would trigger changes in criminal law starting January 1st, 2023. Possession of up to one and a half ounces of cannabis would be a civil violation punishable by up to $100 fine. On July 1st, 2023, that that transition to only being a civil violation for those younger than 21. 
having between one and a half and two and a half ounces of cannabis would be a civil violation punishable by up to a $250 fine starting January 1st, 2023. And possession of more than two and a half ounces would be a misdemeanor criminal offense with penalties of up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $1,000 starting January 1st, 2023. Lawmakers will still need to work out what amount of oils, edibles, and other marijuana products would trigger a civil or criminal violation. Anyone with prior convictions for cannabis possession would have their records expunged from Maryland Judiciary Case Search website and the state's criminal records database. Those currently in jail or prison could apply to the court to have their sentence reduced or to have uh, time served. Um, And the legislation still has a long way to go before landing on voters' ballots. The House Judiciary Committee spent more than four hours on Monday discussing the bill and hearing public testimony. And some lawmakers pointed out details of the bill of the of what the bill doesn't cover, including whether paraphernalia used with cannabis uh, should be further decriminalized and whether to allow people to grow their own cannabis plants. And while there's growing support for legalizing cannabis, it's not universal. Delegate Brenda Tiam, who is black, said she has severe heartburn and feels like black uh, Marylanders are being used as a pawn to push drug legalization. She questioned whether black Marylanders would really be able to make money from an expanded cannabis industry. Well, sounds like Marylanders, you guys have a lot to work out in a short amount of time. Not to mention, it sounds like you guys are going to vote on this and then figure out the devil in the details at the end after you already voted on it. So I'd love to hear what any of you have to say. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got Matthew Winterhawk up from the audience. Matthew, did you want to comment on Jason's headline? Yeah, I just uh, I think it's crazy. What's up, everybody? Um, Matt, obviously, some people know me, some people don't. Uh, that we're still going over the amounts in which somebody can have and then like regulating whether or not they have a misdemeanor or a felony amount of cannabis like we're talking the words of legalization yet is it legal if x amount like if i buy one more tomato do i go to jail if i buy one more piece of corn do i go to jail like it's getting ridiculous the crimes that they have like if they're dispersing to people they shouldn't cool that's a crime not having the product that we're calling legal like that's just my whole point. And that, if you that's come it. back for one more ounce because you need it, you know, that's the reality. Well, well some of the, the some of the issues with that article and some of the Oh, what lovely music. Some of the issues that I'm like, good gosh. Some of the issues that happened during the medical program when it first rolled out, there was a big issue that they, they, you know, they ended up giving out like all these different operator license. And Maryland is a really diverse state with a large black up and come like high, like high end population of individuals that can afford to get in the industry. They have the business ac- um, acumen and none of those licenses were awarded to any black operators whatsoever. So the, the some of the like the, the negativity that you might see from the black community is seeing how jacked up it was with the medical program and not really believing that it's going to be fair when it comes out on the adult use side. Roz, I, I think they worked on a program uh, on with a client in Maryland and it was all black owned. TSG is the name mm-hmm. of the company and there it was all black owned uh, women uh, that uh, owned uh, uh, agriculture. So there was an all black business that was awarded in the initial medical process um, uh, when it first rolled out. It wasn't the retail, but there was, um, an, uh, they got two licenses, all black owned business. Okay, we're way Wait. overdue for the relight. We're going to go ahead and relight right now. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. And today I'm going to keep smoke in the news. Um, the cannabis industry has been struggling to successfully na navigate the social media space, as we all are painfully aware. Uh, we here at the State of Cannabis News Hour actually ran a successful campaign on Clubhouse to make sure that this new platform would be cannabis friendly. So this is a bit of good news. My story is from Benzinga, and the headline is Amazon's Twitch, cannabis-themed usernames allowed under new policy. By the way, I grabbed up cannabis news for my username as soon as I read this story. I hope you guys grab up a good username too. So late last week, Twitch issued an update for its username policy in an effort to put an end to inappropriate names, highlighting that those with cannabis hinting handles will be allowed. Quote, we want to make Twitch the kind of place where everybody feels at home. Curbing hateful conduct and harassment is a vital part of making Twitch a safe and fun place to spend your time, unquote. The particular headline highlight that we need to know is usernames cannot contain references to recreational drugs, hard drugs, and drug abuse, with exceptions for alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. Usernames matter. Quote, they're your textual avatar in chat and a crucial piece of channel branding for creators. Usernames are searchable and have site-wide visibility. Given their usage across Twitch channels, we believe they must be held to a universal and higher standard than other places people express themselves, like chat, for instance, the company pointed out. Twitch is giving ex existing members a chance to adjust to the new standards. Who's on Twitch? I'm on Twitch, and I tried to understand it in the beginning, and I thought I was fucking crazy. And then I went to TwitchCon a few years ago. I've never in my life seen a convention that was more elaborate and, like, huge. They use the entire arena in the Long Beach uh, Convention Center for a gaming competition that had 30 people competing against each other. I've literally never seen anything like this in my entire life. Um, if you're not on Twitch and you're a social media person, get on fucking Twitch. I used to Twitch, but then, you know, weed helped me get <laughs> Yeah, weed made my twitches go away. Weed gave me more twitches. <laughs> no, weed has shown weed has shown to be uh, cannabis CBD has shown to be very helpful for uh, you know epistotic uh, twitching and seizures. So I think cannabis and twitch should go well together. I think we're at the uh, at time for that story. So up next, she's a feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots and a avid supporter of safe banking. Always down to spar. With cannabis-loving libs across the aisle, coming to the stage next, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us this morning, Gretchen? Uh, Not afternoon. Good, good afternoon, <laughs> Rico. Uh, it is afternoon for us here on the East Coast. Uh, my headline today is coming from Marijuana Moment. Washington lawmakers, as in the state, uh, not D.C., 
accused of breaking promise to expand marijuana licensing to address equity concerns. Uh, Raft Hollingsworth is tired of being one of the only black people growing and processing cannabis in Washington state. As the owner and lead grower of the Hollingsworth Cannabis Company, he's seen how difficult it is for people who look like him to break into the legal pot industry. Now, a decade after Washington state voters legalized recreational weed, he is urging state lawmakers to do something to improve that picture. Hollingsworth is supporting a plan that would increase the statewide number of cannabis business licenses, allowing more people to enter the industry and more pop businesses to open. House Bill 2022 would also reserve those new licenses for members of communities most hurt by the war on drugs. The state last increased the number of cannabis retail licenses in 2016, while the window to apply for new producer and processor licenses has been closed since 2013. But the proposal has faced stiff opposition from lawmakers who don't want to add more pot shops, as well as from owners of existing cannabis businesses who worry the industry can't absorb all those new licenses. This past weekend, the measure's prime sponsor, state rep Emily Wicks, uh, said she doesn't see the bill moving forward as a result of those concerns. Groups that have been working years to diversify the state's pot industry are frustrated and outraged by the news. Daryl Powell, an officer with the regional NAACP, said dozens of Democratic lawmakers promised him they would support HB 2022 to help address racial inequities, but they appear to have gone back on their word. Both chambers of Washington's legislature are controlled by Democrats. We've been victimized by this war on weed, war on drugs. After all that, he said, we're not going to negotiate away our equality in a blue state. The idea behind House Bill 2022 is to help more people of color enter the state's pot industry, which right now is mostly white, uh, despite a history of black and Latino people being arrested at higher rates for marijuana possession. While the latest U.S. Census data shows that only about two-thirds of Washington state is white, 85% of marijuana growing and processing businesses in the state are majority white-owned, according to data reported to the State Liquor and Cannabis Board. For marijuana retail shops, about 81% identify as having majority white ownership. And while more than 4% of the state's population is black, state officials estimate that black people have a majority stake in only about 1% of the state's cannabis producing and processing businesses. That's a total of 16 businesses, one of which is Hollingsworth. He said, we're trying to get people into the industry so the industry can thrive, so the industry can be more diverse. Diversity is good for the industry. It's good for new ideas. It's good for the economy. As currently drafted, House Bill 2022 would allow up to 304 new pot retail stores and 200 new cannabis producing and processing businesses to open over the next eight years. Right now, the state has capped retail licenses to allow only 556 cannabis retail stores uh, statewide. Um, I think this is a terrible thing that they're not pushing forward with this. Um, Although from the business perspective, I could see how other businesses are concerned about getting 300 new uh, retail licenses put in. Um, so I'm wondering uh, from folks, especially perhaps Jason Beck uh, and other folks who are in the industry as you know a retailer, um, what would you say to this kind of bill that would allow 300 new licenses? This scratch from State of Campus News Hour. I'm definitely going to have to, I'm super sorry, uh, cut our comments short on this because we are super short on time. we got to get to everybody. And up next, we've got Eric Hislareda. Eric is an award-winning journalist, brand-building content ninja, and a freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Eric, what do you have for us today? Hey, Nicole. Thank you for the intro. And hey, everybody. Great to be here today. Um, my headline is from U.S. News and World Report, and it's No Money for Drug Pipes, Feds Dow Social Media Firestorm. 
So the White House was put on defensive as outrage from the political right, some of it with racial overtones, was cresting online. No federal funding will be used directly or through subsequent reimbursement of grantees to put pipes in safe smoking kits. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra and White House Drug Policy Advisor Rahul Gupta said in a joint statement, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said separately it was never the intention to pay for drug pipes and complained that any such impression was created by inaccurate reporting. Monday was the deadline for service organizations and local governments to apply for a share of $30 million in federal money for harm reduction efforts to prevent disease, injury, and other collateral trauma to people addicted to illicit drugs. Um, so harm reduction, such as providing a space where drug users can inject and be monitored for overdoses, is a controversial idea. Critics see it as enabling drug use, but public health advocates say it's a pragmatic approach to keep bad situations from getting worse. The original request for funding proposals had listed safe smoking kits and supplies among the items that could be purchased with taxpayer money. They were, uh, they were among a dozen categories that included overdose prevention kits, uh, medication lockboxes, test kits for infectious diseases, and syringe disposal containers. The grant solicitation did not specifically mention pipes, although they can be a part of safe smoking kits. Nonetheless, reports that the Biden administration was using federal dollars to pay for, I'm quoting the air quotes, crack pipes took off. Some Republican senators piled on, castigating the administration. Misleading claims about the HHS program dominated social media early Wednesday, that's of last week, many of them from conservative commentators and Republican politicians sharing memes and tweets that received tens of thousands of likes. Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, this is a senator, tweeted, last week Biden talked about being tough on crime. This week, the Biden administration announced funds for crack pipe distribution to advance racial equity. So plantation, Tom. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee chimed in on Twitter Tuesday night to say, end government-funded crack pipes. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida called the purported pipe distribution insanity in a video published on Twitter, which had 245,000 views by Wednesday afternoon. Quoting him, the Biden administration is going to be sending crack pipes and meth pipes targeting minority communities in this country, he said. Uh, meanwhile, back in reality, uh, administration officials Becerra and Gupta said they continue to stand by proven harm reduction strategies like providing Naxalone, fentanyl test strips, and clean syringes. HHS also pointed out that harm reduction grants are required to conform to federal, state, and local laws, and crack pipes are illegal in many jurisdictions. So this is just amazing textbook display of Republican pearl clutching. Nobody cranks up the cranks with dog whistle politics like these guys. The administration is actually trying to do something for the segment of our population dealing with life-threatening disease and addiction, and the GOP turns it into a, cl a clickbait feeding frenzy. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. I, th I think and I that, well, fake said, news. well said. Well said. I think I accidentally bought some crack pipes on eBay. <laughs> Susan, go. My anyway, God. this is just insane. I mean, it's just shit. Here's a really great program, and and these guys just have to pile on, just create a shit storm out of it. It's just. A, it's just a typical crack. I accidentally bought a crack pipe because they used to call them roses and sell them at liquor stores for my mother for Mother's Day when I was nine years old. I thought roses is what she used to pay for uh, 
All right, up next, this this former Northern California cop and dope dad traded in his badge for a blunt and a notepad. He's a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions and our go-to guy on law enforcement stories from an insider's point of view. Up next, it's Chris Eggers. What you got for us this morning, my man? Good morning, fellow dope dad. Uh, Everybody was correct in that previous statement about roses and everything else, I think. I don't know. Uh, my headline today comes out of Washington and says the Washington Senate passes pot shop protection bill. So Senate bill 5927 would add a year to a prison sentence for someone convicted of first degree or second degree robbery of a cannabis retailer. Um, so Senate bill uh, 5927 passed the Senate on Thursday would allow a, uh, an additional year of sentence. If you're convicted of robbing a cannabis retail uh, store, Quote from Senator Bill, sorry, Senator Jim Honeyford. When people would ask the infamous bank robber, Willie Sutton, why he robbed banks, Sutton simply replied, because that's where the money is. Well, that's why people rob marijuana retailers, according to Senator uh, Jim Honeyford. The number of robberies in cannabis stores is on the rise, and this bill would make improvements not just to the benefits of the retailers themselves, but to the public safety and the community as a whole. The passage of the bill in the Senate follows rising concerns over violent robberies in cannabis shops. Tom Bout, the founder of Cannabis Professionals Network, made a spreadsheet tracking the crimes he could find records for. He counted more than 30 crimes since November 2021. Now, this is really interesting. The State Liquor and Cannabis Board said in its, uh, it is communicating different safety tips to various cannabis retailers, and they are higher armed security guards. I put an asterisk next to that. I don't have enough time to talk on it. But also, they said make frequent cash deposits so there isn't as much cash available. Post signs in the business explain the staff don't have access to much cash and clearly communicate safety guidelines with staff so that they know what to do in the event of a robbery. Bounce said Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board is not doing enough to protect cannabis retailers. And he said they have not communicated with the stores like you'd think that they would put out an alert so everyone would know that this is happening, he said during a previous interview. Um, Senate bill 5927 moves on to the house for consideration. I know my time is short today, so I'll leave it there. I'm interested in what people have to say. If anyone there is in Washington can come up on stage if we have time, if not, no worries. My name is Chris Eggers and I'm reporting for the state of cannabis news hour. Thanks for having me up. Yeah. I saw this come out, <laughs> Chris, and my thoughts on the armed guard comment exactly the same. I'm sure as yours. Yeah. Don't, I mean, you know, what if is the question I want everyone to think, you know, what if the armed guard is not a deterrent? then what do we do? You know, we need to put processes in place and make sure our insurance is in order so that if a bad thing happens, these businesses can be made whole. Uh, Human life is is paramount. Have you seen that fog machine that just fills the room up with fog so nobody can see anything? Yes, I have. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? I think there's a lot to consider when when implementing something like that. Um, You know, depending on the particular facility it, it could be good but again i uh i think that there needs to be some insurance uh considerations there at a minimum especially if it's cannabis smoke that would be hysterical i mean now, we're, now I, think, we're I think maybe i think maybe they should fill the room with you know foam like they do in cancun and the uh the suspects and can get then get stds oh my fucking all right what about the fact that like uh with firearms in cannabis shops how come that's not addressed with this a lot i mean they're, right. not, they're not telling neiman marcus to to arm themselves uh with the union square takeover robberies right with all the tax money that they're getting why aren't they coming up with better solutions to assist yeah there are a lot of the recommendations you know even locally in the bay area made by law enforcement are actually just the requirements that people are you know need to uh need to achieve anyway well 
I don't think that's a fair fair point though, Laura, because look at Oakland, they bring in massive revenue but aren't doing anything for our cannabis businesses. Thank you much for that headline, Chris. We're gonna go ahead and hop to our next correspondent. Uh, cannabis's favorite bearded lawyer, stuck somewhere between vibes and the judicial system. A tightrope that he walks quite well. Also the CEO at Fruit Slabs, Brandon Dorsky. What do you have for us today? My headline is court order not enough to stop Connecticut's pot swapping high bazaar. High Bazaar, a weekly event in Connecticut where cannabis purveyors gift their products, is returning to its original home after receiving a cease and desist from the town of Hamden. High Bazaar exists under a portion of Connecticut's laws that allow two individuals to gift each other cannabis, and presenters at High Bazaar can request donations but are not allowed to make direct sales. Joseph Raymond Asitulo, the Bazaar's founder, said, There are no sales. I don't allow any sales there. It all falls under the gifting apparatus that the state put into play with this new bill. Because Bazaar is a private event where cannabis is gifted rather than sold, it has been permitted to continue without legal interference, but local news has painted it as an event where the underground illicit market thrives, and then a cease and desist letter rolled in from the town of Hamden. The cease and desist was actually predicated on a zone, an alleged zoning violation and not the salacious news. The complaint was filed on February 9th and claimed that the 500 to 1,000 person event created a safety hazard and that its location is not compliant with the building and fire code. Allegedly, the amount of people, traffic, and parking created a threat to the public health, safety, and welfare. And the defendants failed to obtain an amusement permit from the town of Hamden, according to the local code of ordinances which requires them to obtain one. Despite the legal skirmish, Bazaar continued again this last Saturday at an outdoor parking lot. It appears that despite this little legal skirmish, the event is going to continue in the town of Hamden, whether it goes uninterrupted in their original parking lot or it ends up returning to uh, its most recent former location where uh, they would now need a permit and have to address their uh, safety and code issues. But other than that, it actually looks like it's going to continue. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. I want to go to the high bazaar. How bizarre would it be if you were high? Not at all. All right. She is the first black female cannabis sommelier, author of Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle Deck, cannabis and wellness coordinator for live music festivals and the CMO of Fruit Slabs. Up next, we've got the illustriously multi-talented Maggie Wilson. Thanks so much for that intro, Rico. Today, I've got a story from Apple News and Insider. Cannabis beverage startup can raise its $27 million. On Tuesday, cannabis-infused beverage startup can announce that it had closed a $27 million, se- $27 million Series A funding round, which included ex- exiting existing investors like Imaginary Ventures, along with celebrities like Rosario Dawson, Nina Dobrev, and Adam Devine. Jake Bullock, the 33-year-old co-founder, told Insider he's moving from California to New York to oversee the company's expansion in the Burraging region. He said in an interview, his goal is to have cans beverages which contain a low dose of THC and CBD and flavors like grapefruit and and lemon lavender on dispensary shelves the the day sales begin in New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Cam started selling products in Massachusetts last year. Bullock says the cannabis epicenter is shifting from L.A. to New York City. Bullock started Can with Luke Anderson in Los Angeles in 2018. Back then, California was the epicenter of the cannabis industry. I don't know why this is past tense, but now that energy is starting to shift east. Um, We launched the business on the west side of L.A. because there's so much cannabis history in California. Bullock says New York was was sort of a a last big cultural 
center that was holding that was holding out. Sales aren't expected to begin until 2023, as an insi- as Insider has reported, but many companies are laying the groundwork already. Quote, that's what the energy is going to be for at least the next two years, Bullock said. The best consumer brands in our eyes are the ones that are successful in L.A. and New York. The Northeast, according to Bullock, offers a different kind of consumer base from the West Coast. For Can, it means customers... Uh, who are perhaps more used to social drinking than smoking and so more likely to embrace the idea of a cannabis beverage. He added that Can has to change how it markets its products based on which coast it's on, so hopefully no more cringy commercials. In California, Bullock said Can had to focus on untraining people who normally would shy away from edibles for other cannabis products because they've had bad experiences. On the East Coast, it's more about educating co- uh, consumers who may be experiencing cannabis for the first time, which is why Can only offers low-dose products that can serve as an entry point. Bullock says, I strongly disagree. I think education about the ECS is the best way to do it, whether it's a high dose or a low dose. Even though cannabis isn't yet federally legal, Bullock says startups like Can have an opportunity to expand and gain a consumer basis, uh, consumer base before big corporations monopolize the industry. I think it's interesting that this is uh, another, another white-owned brand making millions of dollars in the cannabis industry while small black-owned brands suffer and have better products. This is Maggie reporting for the State of Cannabis. Maggie dropping bars over there. I would like to say that they did bring on a, a Rosario Dawson. Um, so they have a black friend now. Half black. No half personal. black. <laughs> yeah. No personal opinions here, but this picture, they look real douchey. Just real douchey. Uh, <laughs> douchey. I, would, I thought douche is good. I would definitely dispute the claim that New York's going to become the epicenter of cannabis over the next two years. Like, come on. Get fucked with that one. Yeah, totally I was excited right, to see what Jason bullshit. had to say about that because I was just like, what? No. Or no, 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 no. can we smoke? Yeah, there's think- no way in hell New York will ever be the epicenter of cannabis. California is the epicenter of cannabis, always will be, always has been. California has been selling the world's cannabis for the last 80 or 90 years and is going to continue to do so because we have a thriving illicit market. Jason, I agree on that one. Hey, Maggie, I think a a point you brought up in that was that they're moving there because of the drinking culture. It's such a huge thing in New York. And so it's going to be really, you know, open arms with uh, beverage there. So they're going to crush it with that. Cans would be huge. If the California government keeps regulating the industry out of business. We ain't going anywhere. We're here. Don't worry. I hear you, but we should fucking you over left uh, and right. As soon as we deschedule, California's going to eat everyone. We'll have a Republican governor. Oh, yeah. It's going to taste so fucking good. We're trying to take Cali Silver and make it New York buzzed. Oh, the businesses are going to come back and the roads are going to be great. They're going to be all (laughs) made out of hemp fruit, Rico. What? They're all going to be made out of hemp fruit. Oh, that'll be be a beautiful day. And there'll be no no fire. Now you're talking church, Jason. That's, that, that's our version of Build Back Better. Flame retardant buildings everywhere. Well, we've re- we've reached the top of the hour. I'm really sad that we didn't get to go to uh, Laura's headline. Liz, maybe you can pop it up on the pin. Uh, that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big, a big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines lines each day just to bring us what we need to know. Big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. (laughs) 
You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. And please check out that article about that bad cop. He he wrote a lot of really bad policy, got a lot of cops fired, and he did all kinds of drugs. So he's gone. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.